squeezed four messages out of the short book of Philemon, which, if I kept that pace and did, say, Ezekiel, I could stretch into about a six-year series. But I will not. I don't think anyone anymore has the stamina for it. There will be Philemon verses appearing on your screen. Yes, right, at least on this side. I don't know about this side. Now, we read them before. I'm just going to read a few of these again. It's a very short letter, as you well know. And this is a short passage from the short letter. Moving on here in this little letter called Philemon or Philemon or I don't know. People pronounce it differently. The Jamaicans say Philemon. But I just say Philemon. So I, Paul, he says, I, Paul, first person, an elderly man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Because, you know, he's sitting in chains. He's sitting in Rome. Appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is both useful to you and to me. And I'm sending him back to you as part of myself. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but might be out of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time. So that you might get him back permanently, and here's the kicker, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. And these are the inspired words in a short letter. So can I do some recaps? We did a few messages and everybody slept a lot since then. About this letter, we said that it's brief. Yeah, it's really brief. A lot of people can't find it and don't read much from it. It's to an individual person, you know, not a church. Most of them are, are to churches and a few are to people. And it's not to a leader like, you know, to Timothy. It's sort of a leader. I mean, a church meets in his home and I guess Colossae, and he's a pretty wealthy guy and so on. But it's not a pastoral letter. He's not telling him, hey, Father, let, me, let me give you some things on how to do the church right. It's about one very particular matter, one very specific situation. It's from one man to another man about a third man. Because the third man is the slave of Philemon. And he ran off and maybe he stole stuff. And Paul, he, he encountered Paul. Maybe he looked for him. And they've, they've had some time together. So now as is sometimes what happened when people met up with Paul. He's a converted man, and he's a new man. And so he's making it right, and he's going back. And now he's a fellow believer. So he's not the same guy as you know, stole stuff and left. He's a different guy. And so now the difference here, as you see in verse 16, he says he's coming back, and, you know, I mean, he's still technically your slave, that's the way the world works. That's what he is. He's coming back, but, but he's a lot more than that. Because now you guys are not just fellow uh, inhabitants of Rome, but now you have, a, you, know, you have another citizenship. And in that, in that kingdom, that more important citizenship, he's your brother. He's your equal. As it says, uh, you know that third verse of Old Holy Night, you sing at Christmas, where it says, the slave is our brother, which it takes from this. Well, that's what he's saying. That, 
that if you if you were going to distill the message of the whole letter, really it would be that. It would be this guy is your brother now. And so I'm counting on you, Philemon, to do the Christian thing, which is to take him as your brother, to forgive the wrongs he did. And and if there's anything owed, Paul says later, I'll pay it. Treat him, he says, like it's me coming to see you. Treat him like you would treat me. So as to the background of the letter, when we started talking about it, I said, you know, when we see it, we think, wow, a slave. Hmm. So we had to get some context. And I mentioned to you that the idea of slavery, by which we just mean forced servitude, forced servitude, whatever, whatever it looks like, that's what it is. That it's universal. There's nothing weird about there being a slave in this passage because there would be nothing weird in most of history, in most places, with there being a slave. Because slavery was the norm in most places in the world, in most of the eras of history. It's the rule, not the exception. Slavery existed on every continent except Antarctica. So, you know, you had prisoners of war. People always went to war. They had captives. You had law codes like ours. We, we, we put people in prison, but in other law codes, they would sometimes sentence people to forced work for a period, i.e., you're a slave as a punishment. It could be the kind of poverty or debt that's so big, you're in such debt that you've just got to work it off. You, are, you will be a debt slave. And then, of course, there have always been kidnappers and unscrupulous human smugglers and traffickers and pirates and so on. All of these reasons and more made slavery a norm throughout the world. We just, we don't see it, we don't understand it. It's a thing of the past to us. And certainly no one in here ever fears the notion that you would ever be, you know, forced into some kind of servitude. We live pretty good, you know. We, we, live, we, live, we live the country club life like, uh, by the way, since the colonel's back in here, uh, Hal, you know where that you know where the wedding was yesterday. By the way, I didn't I didn't know until I pulled up at your favorite golf club. That's right. I, yeah, I didn't see you out there. I was hoping one of your one of your errant balls wouldn't fly through in the middle of things. So yeah, most people didn't the Romans the Romans you know most of life for most of their people they weren't they weren't they weren't reclining at nice golf clubs. So the life of this poor guy, Onesimus, I mean, it was, it was, there were more like him than there were like Philemon. So there was nothing strange when the Christians went from city to city to city in the Roman world. It, they didn't say, what? Slaves? That's weird. No, and in fact, of course, the gospel really took root among people who were in the low, on the low rungs of the social ladder. It always really has done that. And so ditto for Christians everywhere. In all, in, all, in all the places where the church has gone, most of those places have had slavery because it's been so prevalent. You remember that I said, when we were talking about this, that uh, most of the people on earth, most of the people groups on earth have been on both sides of the slavery equation. That is, most of them have been both on the top part of the ladder where they're, they're the ones who, who own and those same people at whatever point have also been on the other side and have been owned. This happens at the tribal level, small time, and it happened at the massive level. We know that one better. 
Even many Europeans were enslaved. Someone might say, well, not every people have been enslaved. I mean, Europeans never were. Oh, yes, they were. By the million. Different times and places. The word slave refers to Slavic people. It's where it came from. And all those Irish that were, that were slave, uh, slaves sent forth, sent out, shipped everywhere. China had a massive slave market. The Muslims of Turkey and the Arab nations were, were shipping people around. Not literally shipping because they didn't have navigation yet. They took them by land, which was worse. They marched them through the Sahara. They went into Africa for centuries before Europeans ever went there. So, you know, sometimes when we talk about the real history, you know, of slavery, someone may think, oh, you're trying to downplay it. Are you trying to say it's, a, it's, not, it's not nearly what we thought it was, that we've made too much of it? Well, in, in point of fact, it's the opposite. For most Americans, what I would be telling you is, oh, it's way bigger than you thought it was. Your view of it is too small, not too big. Because you only think of one small period of time and one small chapter in the history of slavery when it's, it's a whole book. Well, as to the message of the book, as we said, we saw that you know, Paul puts to death the, the idea that, that people in the church can be elitists. Remember that? Because Philemon still is up here on the social hierarchy, and Onesimus is down here. And that's how it would always be in, in the Roman context. But what Paul says is, but you're not allowed to use that reality as a way for you to think you're better than him. The Romans will always, the, the secular society will always think you're better than him. But you know better. He knows better. You should. There is no place for elitism in the church. So they're brothers now. Well, here's a question, though, that I want to address today here because... It's a reasonable question, and I think Christians naturally wonder about it today. And they ask about it. When they read a book like this, and they think about these circumstances, they will ask something like, well, I mean, it's good that, I mean, it's great that Paul says that. And he says, um, you know, you should treat him like your brother. That's a good message. I, I like that. That's very positive. I agree with that. But why doesn't Paul, you know, campaign against the whole idea, uh, an institution as a whole, in his entire, he's a Roman citizen. And he knows what goes on, he knows how prevalent, why doesn't he just rail against it and organize to try to overturn that in the Roman society? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't, why didn't that early church that's growing and, you know, they're underground and they're doing their thing and they're getting bigger and bigger, why weren't they doing that? It's a legitimate question. It's one that we're likely to ask. It's one that we are bound to ask, really, because, especially given our perspective, because we're sort of on the other side of all, a lot of these things, and we who live in the free world, we just take for granted the fact that nobody would exist in the status of a slave, for crying out loud, not anymore. And we're aware of this long history of stuff, and also we're aware, though, of a history of sort of social activism, and we, we know our rights, we think like activists, rightly so, we, because, you know, we're just sort of born and raised with the idea that we can petition our government for grievances. It's right there in the Constitution. So we can think that way. It's quite easy for us to. Our rights to protest. But most people on planet Earth have not had, and still most of them do not have, that kind of protection offered them to protest in that way. Paul would have had a real, I mean, almost an impossible uphill battle to try to overturn 
something like that in his word. Not in by the use of political forces, that is. He had no voice. Well, he's a Roman citizen. Yeah, they didn't really get to vote still. And so, why though, why not really, why hasn't since then maybe more people in the world done that? What's the deal? Well, can I give you just a quick history lesson here so that we can sort of understand? I want to push across the point that, as a matter of fact, Paul's words in that passage, they did. They, they, they planted the seeds. They sowed the seeds that would be the complete undoing and demise of the idea of slavery without, a, without an army behind him, of course. Armies would come later behind other governments. Well, uh, to sort of understand that, we have to understand that the early church had no political power to alter their society. Paul could snap his fingers and change all of the Roman world. They had another power, though, that carried through the ages right up to now. They had a power that is unseen, and it was that power. It was the power of the gospel, of their message, and the truth of Scripture that worked in the hearts of people, renewed people, changed people, that made them kingdom-minded people. And that's what would ultimately bring about this sort of global transformation. i quote you a few people who know about it way better than I know about it, but I rely on what they say. The one, one historian says, while slavery was common to all civilizations, only one civilization developed a moral revulsion against it. Only one. And it was mentored by Christian principles. What was peculiar about the West, this guy writes, was not that it participated in the worldwide practice of slavery. That was not peculiar at all. What was peculiar was that it later abolished that practice. That was what was strange. As historian Martin Klein said, I have found no evidence that slavery came under any serious attack in any other part of the world. It was in every part. How did it happen? What, why, did it, why did it die out? It was lucrative. I mean, over the years, it made people a lot of money. Well, there, are, there are, is a history of great saints who, pe being people who read words like Philemon, who knew it well, since the Bible is the, is the cornerstone text, really, of the Western world going back. It's, it is the most translated, the most read book in all the centuries. Even among the early, the earliest Spanish uh, colonizers, you know, because because Europeans, well, they advanced enough in navigation to take big boats across big oceans that no one had been able to do this before. And when they did, they found new places. And when they found those new places, they did what all people had always done. They said, "All right, new places. We claim this land for our king." That's the way everything worked. That's what they did made treaties with this tribe, brokered with this tribe, traded with this tribe, made war with this tribe, so on. They just got themselves involved in those places. And because of the sin nature of people, which direction do you think that stuff went? Just given, left to our own devices. It sort of deteriorates over time because the greed of people, the plundering nature of people. But there were Christians in the mix. Uh, the Spanish colonizers on the islands had 
priests like the man named Bartolome de las Casas, who traveled several times across the Atlantic in the 1500s, and he wrote against the mistreatment of natives. He would go back to Spain and he would rail against it. He made a lot of enemies doing this. People are making a lot of money. And when you speak out against people who are making money, they get mad. And that's still true today. So he made a lot of enemies, but he kept doing it. He was a tireless voice across Spain for the humane policies that they should have enacted toward those people. You go across Europe, got this guy named Menno Simons. Menno Simons, a Roman Catholic priest. 1536, he became a Dutch Anabaptist. He got these followers they called Mennonites. They became uh, vocal anti-slavery advocates. In England, you had this guy named George Fox. And he was raised by some strict Puritans. He started a thing called the Society of Friends. Some other people nicknamed him the Quakers in derision for the most part. He was admired by Oliver Cromwell. He had a strong influence on William Penn, our guy over here. The Quakers were major, major activists against slavery. And, I mean, their roots are still evident. They sort of have roots in organizations like Amnesty International. They had this group, these these bunch of Czech guys, you know, CZE, these Czech guys, called the Unity of the Brethren, a.k.a. the Moravians. And they gathered all these followers and they impacted all these people. One of the men they impacted was John Wesley. And Wesley became a a figure of, as we well know here, of enormous influence. So in 1774, Wesley wrote a pamphlet on slavery. And it was a thorough, scathing indictment on every single aspect of the slave trade. And that thing was widely circulated. And it influenced men such as John Newton. Newton once ran a slave ship, made good money on it, but he got converted. And when he did, he became a vocal anti-slavery advocate and a minister. And he wrote this little song that sort of became, I guess, the uh, most sung hymn ever of all time. We sang a little bit earlier. And then, then then see it, these Christian influencers, uh, it, it started to bleed up to people with real power, with real political influence. And so you get a guy like William Wilberforce who feels the influence of the Quakers. He gets to know these people. And men like John Newton, people he admires. And these anti-slavery Anglicans also. Um, these sectarian groups, they're, they're tireless. They're going everywhere. And they get a hold of him. And he feels like this is his calling this is to put this to, to an end. And so he lead, starts to lead the charge in 1789. He, uh, he, he introduces an abolition bill in 1791. It was soundly defeated. Again, money interests. Soundly defeated. But for the next 16 years, he recrafted the bill and re-offered offered it every single year. Meantime, meantime, there were, there were people going from place to place, all kinds of abolitionist activists, the hearts of the people being influenced. You know, as they went, there were British um, missionaries in Africa or from Africa who would describe firsthand things that the English didn't even know were going on, like how these slaves are procured. And so one writer said, quote, eventually such strong feelings were aroused among the British public that anti-slavery petitions with unprecedented numbers of signatures poured into Parliament from around the country, from people, from all walks of life. 
These guys won the hearts and minds of the people. That slowly put the pressure on the parliamentarians. Year after year, more of them come over. Finally, in 1807, the Slave Trade Act passed, which one historian, a guy named G.M. Trevelyan, called it one of the turning events in the history of the world. And then the abolitionists turned their attention to the next bill, which would outlaw not just you know the shipping and trading and business part of it, but would outlaw all of it, slavery itself, which in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act finally passed. That made slavery illegal, period. And it extended throughout all British dominions, the entirety of their empire. And so then secular thinkers, guys like Adam Smith in Britain and Montesquieu, they started to be convinced by it. And so you see the real irony, you know what the irony of this is? That it was Britain's overwhelming power that finally did the actual work to abolish it. That is the force. They had the premier navy in the world. So one writer says it was essentially European imperialism which ended slavery. Try that line out, uh, in, you know, among some modern-day intellectuals. And that's very counterintuitive to the way people would have thought. It really was, but they, but but it wasn't. They wouldn't have even. They would never have done it had it not been for the hearts of people working to pass those laws. And then, then it was the British power that did it. And, and it cost them dearly. In 1862, John Stuart Mill wrote on this and he said, For the last half century, we, the British, have spent annual sums equal to the revenue of a small kingdom in blockading the African coast for a cause in which we not only had no interest, but which was contrary to our pecuniary interest. In other words, this is a money-losing proposition that we're doing this. They're actually doing it for moral reasons. So that, you, you, and you, you may think, yeah, that's kind of, you Christians think that you did all this. Is that really how it went? Listen to how the Encyclopedia Britannica summarizes how this went down. Quote, the fate of slavery in most of the world depended on the British abolition movement, which was initiated by the English Quakers, 1783, when they presented the first important anti-slavery petition to Parliament. They were following the Pennsylvania Quakers, who had voiced opposition to slavery in 1688. The Vermont Constitution, 1777, was the first document in the U.S. to abolish slavery. Another sign of the spread of it, this, this feeling, was the Declaration of the U.S. Constitution, which declared the importation of slaves forbidden after 20 years. And there was another act in March of 1807 that forbade trading in slaves with Africa. In 1807, the British abolished the slave trade in their colonies. In the Caribbean, slavery was abolished by parliamentary fiat in England, effective July 1834, when 776,000 slaves in the British plantation colonies were freed. British law had an immediate impact on the juntas struggling for independence in Spanish America. Slave trade was declared illegal in Venezuela, and in Mexico in 1810, Chile in 1811, and so on. And so that the British anti-slavery movement of the 1810s, the encyclopedia says, had all but put an end to the institution of slavery in numerous places around the globe. 
And by the way, it was a, it was over against the opposition of a lot of other people. The Turks, when the British came and said, you, you guys can't do slavery anymore, they didn't take it well. The historian said suppressing the slave trade across the Persian Gulf and Red Sea was much harder and took much longer than suppressing the Atlantic slave trade. The Arab nations were not having it. And so it took a long time. What about the U.S.? I mean, we, we know about what happened here because that's all we've ever seen depicted in our movies, you know? We think that all of it happened right here in one small place. But as we said before, of all of those transported from Africa over across the Atlantic, about 4.5% of them wound up in British North America. 4.5%? Where'd the rest of them go? Bunches of them. The majority. They went out to all these islands on the Caribbean, which were run by the Dutch, the French, you know, all the, the Spanish and Portuguese. A bunch of them went to Brazil and all kinds of places in South America. But we only know about this one section. But what about that? What about that one? Well, see, again, it wasn't, according to the Times, it wasn't all that strange that, that it would be there since it was everywhere else. But what is strange is that a nation would fight a civil war to end it. They say that probably no other nation paid a price that steep to end it. And some of those even on there on that on that side didn't even like slavery. Robert E. Lee famously opposed it, thought it was terrible, wished that someday it would end. But you know, a loyalist to his state, so he fought. Here's a nice summary by another historian. Quote Themselves the leading slave traders of the 18th century, Europeans nevertheless became, in the 19th century, the destroyers of slavery around the world. Not just in European societies, but in non-European societies also. Over the bitter opposition of many Africans, Arabs, Asians, and others. Moreover, within Western civilization, the principal impetus for the abolition of slavery came first from very conservative religious Activists, people who would today be called the religious right. Clearly, this story is not necessarily politically correct in today's terms, hence it is largely ignored. Now, when we think about this, and we think, well, um, wow, that's really cool, and I am glad now that I see this. What, how does it connect? Well, you see, that movement through all those years of those people, those Christians, spending decades fighting against this, that would lead to that. Where Did that come out of a vacuum? Bible-reading people, people discipled by the truth of the Word, people who knew things like the slave, he is your brother. People, who, people whose lives are built on truths like that. And if you have some other system of thinking, if you have some different worldview, I don't know that you have that belief. And if you say you do, I don't know what it's grounded in. And for all practical purposes, if you're on top of the social hierarchy, maybe you'd rather have a point of view that justifies that. But a Christian can never justify that. Philemon might have liked to think, you know, I'm a rich guy and I'm on the top here, so I, I, I own this guy, I can do as I please. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit 
falls on the believer who's at the top of the pyramid, just like it falls and convicts everyone else down here. And Philemon has to choose, who is my Lord? Because what he knew uh, is that, you know, in Roman, in the Roman context, he is a master of someone. But in the real world context, in the true kingdom of God, he has a master. Like Doug said earlier, Philemon was a bond slave himself because all Christians are willing bond slaves and servants. And we serve our master. And he says, you don't do that. You do not abuse your situation in whatever society you live. If you're on the high, if you're on the high rung of the ladder, you don't get to lord it over those on the lower rung. And if it costs you money, and if it costs you prestige, and if it costs you, I don't know, maybe your life, certainly maybe your reputation, you still do what is right. And so all of these believers over the years, they did that. Well, it's a good thing that's all over with and there's no one we have. We don't have to worry about things like slavery anymore. Well, 2017 CNN had a story called People for Sale. Highlighting the idea that, uh, yeah, there are people, there are undercover uh, cell phone video of people going on an auction block. Can you believe that? An auction block. So they tell us that millions of people today are still trafficked. So it's not like it's finished and over with and done for. We're just sort of blind to it. But this still this this still happens. So that's one reason why we partner with a, a group like No Boundaries. We're really excited to get with these people. They know what they're doing. You know who they're helping. They're 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 they've got this way of reaching out. I don't even know how they find them. But there are people trafficked right down the I-35 corridor. Just picture a big old slave ship cruising down I-35, up from the border and where they, they're just moving them right through our city. And they help, they pull these people out. The church doesn't think that we will just do the activism without the conversion of people. Without the conversion of all the names I gave you, if those people hadn't been truly converted people, I wouldn't have read their names. They probably wouldn't have done what they did. Here's a great quote from John Wesley for you. He says, here it is, a scheme to reconstruct society which ignores the redemption of the individual is unthinkable and a doctrine to save sinning men with no aim to transform them into crusaders against social sin is equally unthinkable. That's how it works. That's how it worked in that history that I just read to you. And that's how I would argue it works now. That's the biblical way. Conversion of people. The mentorship of Christ in the lives of people. They, they have, they're under new management. They have a new master. And disciples of, of the ultimate liberator then can go out into the world and can truly liberate other people. And yeah, even politically, they... They can be parliamentarians themselves, or if you will, congressmen, senators, mayors, and so on and so forth, or working for, I mean, however, wherever God calls them to go, they go to those places, and then we see those things happen. Simple words, right? No longer a slave, but more than a slave, your brother. Very brief, very simple, but immensely bigger in scope, maybe, than Paul ever realized they would be. He couldn't look down the quarters of time and see uh, everything that would unfold in the history to come, just, you know, there's a resounding, ringing influence of his words, inspired words, and what that would mean 
in the lives of people to the tune of you know millions of people rescued from these kind of circumstances. So slavery still exists, but the church still exists, amen? Just the same as all those people. And so, so it is that you know, we, we can maintain those words. By the way, I mentioned to you, um, I mentioned to you, Oh Holy Night. I was thinking about that when I, when, when I first, I didn't even think about the fact that those, that, that verse, that third verse, had come directly from Philemon until I was just thinking through it, reading Philemon, and I thought, man, this, that line keeps coming to me. The slave is our brother. That's in a song. I'm like, well, what is that song? You know how to do that? You have to sort of like reverse engineer. You got the line, but what's the song? And I didn't, at first it didn't occur to me. I thought, I think it's a hymn. And so then when I back engineered it, I realized, oh, that's from Oh Holy Night. The words are actually perfect. And here's what that third verse says. It says, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break. For the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease.